In Session with Dr. Farid Hulakwi. Good evening. Welcome to In Session. I'm your host, Dr. Fadi Tulakwi, and I'll be with you for the next hour here on Radio Hamra. Student number to call in, 310-441-0555. You can follow me on Twitter or Instagram or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show or suggest topics or topics or books for the program. And the shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Uh, let's get to the books of the week. The book of the week for uh, this week, actually I'll be talking about on Friday's show, is Yes to Life in Spite of Everything by Victor E. Frankel. Yes to Life in Spite of Everything. Um, you may know Victor Frankel, uh, his very well-known book, Man's Search for Meaning, one of my favorite books. Actually, I might touch on it later on related to a different topic. Let's see how the show goes. Uh, but this is a another of his books, I think one of his um, later books based on a few lectures he did. So, Yes to Life in Spite of Everything by Victor E. Frankel. Let's get to the book of the week from last week that I'll be talking about tonight. It is The Fugitive by Marcel Proust. Um, and this is book six of seven of In Search of Lost Time. And... I've read these over the last two years or so, and I've read a few of them in these last few months. And so there is just one more volume left. Um, looking forward to reading it to, to complete the series, uh, but it will probably be a few weeks or maybe months before I get to that one. Uh, this one, The Fugitive by Marcel Proust. So um, when I read books of literature and talk about them on the show, for several reasons, I don't get too much into the, to the plot of what happens. One is to not give any spoilers to anyone who might want to read the books themselves, but also because often the plot the, is not necessarily the most important element, or it's not about what happens, but how it's described or discussed that's more significant. And that's also true uh, in this book. So I might allude to some things that happen in the book without getting too much in the details of, of the plot and how it develops. And all of these books, although it's not directly made clear, we get the sense that Marcel Proust is himself the narrator, um, and that it might be based in some ways on his own life, or definitely his experiences, which can be similar. The author or the narrator, I should say, in the book is a writer himself, who we see throughout these first six books, having a hard time actually being productive, getting himself to write, procrastinating. Um, I think it's one of the themes looking at time, which is a big element, even the title, In Search of Lost Time. Uh, I think the last volume is Finding Time Again. So we see that this element of time regret also is a big one. But we get the sense that this is about him himself. As I mentioned in previous discussions, there is a pretty good sense that he himself was homosexual and we see lots of themes related to homosexuality in the book and this one uh, throughout the volumes and this one also includes that. Uh, so we do get the sense that this is him in a way describing his life or talking about his life or definitely using his life as a starting point. It was in the previous volume actually that a few times someone referred to him by name as Marcel 
But other than that, we never hear what his name is or really get a full sense of how old he is at times. Someone asked me, how old is he in the parts of the book I was reading? And I'm like, you're not quite sure. At least for me, it's not very clear. It, it's not indicated in a very explicit way. But you get a sense of him getting older throughout the book. So uh, as all of these books uh, that I've described or discussed on the show in this volume, there's lots of issues related to things like memory and memory being automatically or um, uh, uh, brought up unconsciously. Uh, All of a sudden, the most famous being in the first book when he bites into a Madeline, but we see throughout this book as well, he has a loss in a romantic relationship, and then he's dealing with that loss. And it's really interesting to see him in this pain that this book starts with of missing this person um, first because they leave and then later because they die and how he deals with those things and um, dealing with things like forgetting of seeing your feelings change. Even he describes, for example, you know, because this narrator is now recounting his life story, things that he went through and how he sees that there's previous loves that he thought he would never get over, but then he did. And then so it's likely this will be the same, but that when you're in it, it doesn't feel that way. And that was, I think, a very relatable experience, something that can be helpful for any of us when you're going through a difficult time to remember that previous difficult times, maybe that were similar, but maybe if they're dissimilar to the current experience, when we're in them, they can feel so dark and they are so dark and painful. But one of the things that can make them even scarier is feeling that it'll always feel sad or painful. And we have this experience when day after day, we're still sad about something. There could be this, this very understandable feeling of, will it ever go away? Um, But we do tend to see that with time, and of course, what we do with that time is also very important. Healing can happen and that we don't stay in that dark mood. It is something to be mindful of when you share advice, because I think sometimes hearing that we can think if someone has said, oh, you're going to feel better. And it can be important to have that mindset when you're being there for someone, even if you're being there for yourself. But if you're being there for someone, that can be helpful. But we have to be careful not to too quickly undermine the pain or what they are experiencing. Oh, you're sad about this breakup. Oh, you're going to feel better uh, very soon. But it can be helpful to, when you're there, feel ready to remind them that because of past experiences they've had, we know they will be okay. And keeping that in mind, as I said, even if it's for ourselves or if we're talking to a friend or a loved one, about what they're going through. Um, there is a book I haven't read that's called um, Proust Was a Neuroscientist uh, by Debaton. And um, it does make sense as I've been reading these books, seeing how much, although it was written um, over 100 years ago, these books really um, ring true with what we know about the brain and what neuroscience tells us about the brain and how it works, the ways that he describes things that Uh, automatically, involuntarily, a memory comes up. Um, He talks about the unconscious as a noun, which he's uh, one of the first authors to do that, writers to do that, to talk about this, the unconscious, and he shares these different stories. Even at one point, he was talking about um, avoiding some types of memories or some thoughts as we would walking around a dark room, avoiding the furniture. And I thought that was a really beautiful metaphor 
of how we at times might even try to avoid thinking of, of something that might be painful or that might bring up painful thoughts or feelings. Uh, one part I found really fascinating and, you know, him, him being able to make sense of something or put it in a way that is really quite insightful and wise about how we can care about someone after they've died, even what they might think about us so or something that we learned about them. So um, let me share this because it relates to a thought I had recently that, of course, I didn't think I was the first to think something like this, but here I see Proust talking about it more than 100 years earlier. Um, so this is after his romantic partner has, or someone he's been with, um, has died and trying to learn about her more, learn more things about her past, things that do bring him pain and jealousy. And he even talks about how it could be funny that we're still jealous of someone, even after they're dead. It could bring up feelings of, of jealousy, which points to what that might even mean jealousy is about. It's not just about the other person. It's bringing up, obviously, something about us and, of course, within us. Uh, but so that he's still feeling jealous as he learns these new things. So uh, this is from the book itself. When we try to figure out what will happen after our death, are we not mistakenly still projecting the image of our living selves, which we have at that moment? And in the end, is it much more ridiculous to regret that a woman who no longer exists is unaware that we have found out what she was doing six years earlier than to wish that the public should still speak well of us in a century's time? when we ourselves are dead. So he's making this comparison to how he now is wanting this woman who is no longer alive. He wishes in a way he could tell her or she would know that he knows these things about her now. Um, but he makes this analogy to something I think is, is uh, important to consider the ways we at times think about our legacy or that will people still be talking about us? Will uh, they be saying our name or remembering what we did. And so he says, isn't that the same of thinking how the public will speak of us in a century's time when we are dead? And that's something that I've thought about often or thought about recently more often, this thought that, yeah, why do we get so preoccupied? We won't even be alive to experience that, but we're imagining it because all we can do is think of it now. What would it feel like? Uh, if people were talking about me now and imagining that in the future, but it'll be a very different circumstance. So um, it's, it's always interesting when you have a thought that you think, oh, that seems kind of new or at least new to me. And then you see that very clearly it's been written by at least one author, I'm sure many others as well, in a very clear way, making this connection to how we can think about loved ones and even past loved ones and how they might think or feel about something, which seems strange, but at the end of the day, we recognize that all of our relationships, although we have them with people and we're interacting with them, our experience of it is internal. So although they are dead, we still can have a relationship with them, as strange as that might sound. Um, often I've worked with people who are grieving and they can feel even worried or concerned or think, am I going crazy? Am I... Am I, you know, becoming schizophrenic because I'm, I'm talking to the person who is dead or I thought I saw them or have conversations with that person. Even they might share with some type of guilt, embarrassment, shame, concern. And I, of course, try to relate to them how natural and understandable this is to, to have a conversation with a person who is no longer alive. 
you do it when people are alive too. You might think, okay, my friend, loved one, coach is not here, but what would they say to motivate me or inspire me? And you sometimes hear their voice. You might think, oh, I think I can hear them saying, keep going. You got this. You're going to be okay. And this is a way that we carry all of our relationships within us, whether the person is dead or alive. Of course, that could affect how much we can interact with them now uh, in a way, um, but it doesn't affect how we might interact with them internally. And those internal representations and relationships continue, whether that person is here or not. So um, we do often find that people have these conversations with people, talk to people, even sometimes verbally out loud. And sometimes it could feel very okay and natural because some cultures will discuss it openly. But sometimes people can feel very bad about that when they don't need to. So um, seeing him deal with this experience of grieving this love and finding that he's still jealous and then over time seeing that he now doesn't have those feelings of jealousy as he learns new things and how interesting that can be um, to see that he talks about himself as different people and I think that's a very good way of thinking about our our psychology our psyche that of course I think of myself as one individual my whole life but really it's many selves even many selves at a certain time but especially over time and I think Proust does an incredible job of discussing this and describing this type of experience of having these different feelings of different uh, seeing the same thing but now experiencing it differently because he himself is different or hearing news that he could try to imagine what it would have felt like years ago or he remembers similar things giving him a certain feeling or experience and now seeing that it is quite different and seeing that he has changed but changed so slowly and imperceptibly that even he didn't notice it until this type of an experience or realization. So um, again, I highly recommend these books. As I said, I don't discuss the uh, plot too much. I don't think that's the most significant thing, but you do see lots of things that have been woven together, which makes me even more uh, anticipating the last volume to see how it all comes together and really what is uh, the conclusion of these these books that I've been reading over the last couple of years. So I do highly recommend it. I think I'll make a more clear sense of um, the whole picture of it once I finish the seventh volume, but highly recommend them already. Again, this was book six of seven, The Fugitive by Marcel Proust, book six of In Search of Lost Time. Let's go to our first commercial break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Um, as I was discussing Marcel Proust's book, The Fugitive, in the previous section, uh, I was reflecting this week also on the the story of our own life. And so, as I mentioned, it does seem that there's a lot of autobiographical uh, content in this book, or at least that can be the basis of a lot of what we see in this book. And whether or not we ever write a actual autobiography or uh, a novel or piece of fiction based on our lives. We are all authors in a variety of ways in our own life. And one way, of course, we can say we're the author as far as what we do. And that can be one conversation of its own of how much we see ourselves as the author of our life, how much 
say do we think we have and what happens to us. Um, but in general, we also have a sense of a story we tell ourselves about our life and also about who we are in that life. And there's even whole schools of thought and therapy, things like narrative therapy, focusing on this story, which I think is uh, is a very valuable line of thinking and, and therapy and type of a mindset because it's a very real thing. You know, we might just think that uh, our life is our life. But as I've discussed many times on the show related to things like memory and what we remember and how we remember things, we know that our memory is not some type of a purely accurate tape recording of our experience. It's much more something that's uh, affected by how we want to remember things and many other factors that can impact what we remember that gets us to realize that although we might think we just remember what happened to us, we are definitely telling ourselves a story. And then, of course, we tell others or share others this story as well. And so that's one thing just to be aware of, to to think about that. What type of story do we tell or we think about ourselves? Uh, first, just to recognize that it isn't some fixed thing, that it's not just my life is my life and what's happened to me. What do I remember and how do I remember it? There's more to it than that. Um, this line also just came to me of, uh, your story is not finished. And I think that's true for all of us. Of course, we can't know how much longer we have. Uh, life is this fragile thing. And I've talked about mortality often on the show recently, but we don't know how long we have, but Regardless of that, your story is not finished. And that also means that your story doesn't have to continue the way that it has so far, especially it doesn't have to continue the way you think it even has been so far, or the character that you are can change as well. Uh, we have this sense that we are who we are, and this is something also that's fixed. But as I was mentioning in the previous segment about many selves, we are far more complex than that, just like your romantic partner. Uh, although we might think they're boring, that's something we do to trick ourselves because there's much more to them that we could ever know. There's also much more to ourselves that we are yet to know that we can explore and change. But also whatever you've gone through in your life, your story is not finished if you've been someone who uh, has lived life a certain way, experienced certain things, it doesn't mean your life has to continue that way. And going back to what I was saying about telling ourselves a story, what can be important is to think about why might I remember my story or tell my story about myself and my life the way that I do? Because often, although it might seem counterintuitive, even if we think of our life or remember our life in negative ways, it might actually be serving us in certain ways. How might that be? This is something that can be puzzling for us. Why would I want to think low of myself, negative of myself, or negative about my life? Well, often it's much more safe and comfortable to think of ourselves in certain ways that make it seem like we uh, get bad luck, which I'll talk about, or just 
don't have good things or do good things or have good things happen to us. So if I just think in my personal life, oh, things just never work out for me. Uh, you know, relationships just always go bad. People always treat me wrong or whatever else we might think. Although this, of course, who, we might think who would want to th think that or who would want to make that their life story. Well, a few things can be beneficial there. In, in a again, might seem counterintuitive, but if we go a little deeper, we can see why that might feel beneficial. For one, it can leave me off the hook as far as what I need to do in the future. If relationships always go bad for me, if people always do me wrong, well, then I don't really need to try anymore to put myself in uncomfortable situations. I'm telling you what's happened to me and telling myself, of course. So it means there's no need to keep trying. Why should I put myself in these situations where uh, people are hurting me? I've, I've seen it happen again. And again, I shouldn't do that to myself. It would be stupid to do that again based on what I've gone through. And the wise thing is for me to not try anymore. And so this lets us off the hook. And here I'm talking about something related to relationships. We all do this in a variety of ways, choosing this comfort zone of not pushing ourselves not getting uncomfortable, not trying new things and figuring out some kind of narrative, some kind of justification for why this is actually the more wise, smart thing to do. The other thing it does, so it prevents me from having to in the future try new things, it also lets me off the hook for my past, that if my relationships have not worked out, uh, if they've not gone well, if I've been hurt, it was not my fault. I, I've just been this unlucky person. I've had bad luck or, or the world is bad and people are bad. So it might not just be me, but in general, that's the way it is. So it's interesting when we think that and we say people are bad and are we ourselves people, it could show how um, egotistical our thinking can be, narcissistic in the way that we see it so much from our own perspective that we can make a comment like people are bad and somehow it doesn't include us or doesn't refer to us. But of course it should. And so if we see people that way, there might be something hidden in there that we do recognize we're not so uh, not guilty or unguilty in what's happened to us or what's happened in our relationships. But as I was saying, it lets us off the hook for our past. If things haven't worked out in my life, it's not because I've done anything wrong. I've done everything right. Look, I did this. I did that. Look how nice I was to this person that ended up screwing me over. Um, from the beginning, the relationship was good. Everything was good. I did my responsibility of finding the right person and look how bad it was and look how they became something I could have never imagined. So again, it, it seems strange to think, why would I want to think my luck is bad or bad things have happened to me? But we can see how it makes it easier for us to look at our past and feel like we can create an easier future. I'm not responsible for the bad things that happened to me. And because of all those experiences would make sense. You could understand. I could understand why I won't be putting myself, myself in those situations anymore. And I mentioned luck. Um, and that's, I think, a big aspect of this narrative of ourself. Have I been lucky or unlucky in life? And I know there's a, it's been for many years, and of course, many years, maybe in a Western type of thinking, but not, uh, it's been around much longer than that but a movement towards gratitude, um, being grateful for what you've had, looking at the positive 
doing a gratitude journal or every day reflecting on what are the things you're grateful for in your life that have happened to you. And so that I think could be good to take us away from what can often be this easier place that we go uh, of thinking about the negative. And overall, I think if you ask people, they might, some might say that they're lucky, but more often than not, you'll hear people say they've had bad luck in life, um, that they've been unlucky in life. And, well, I think there's a few reasons for that. One is that life is hard. So when we reflect on our life, we will, of course, we try to focus on positive things and things we're grateful for, but anyone will have pains that they've experienced, just emotional pains from internal things that they've gone through, but of course, external life events that were very hurtful and harmful. And we also know that, um, I think my, my sense is that any living being would make sense to have this in some level. We have a negativity bias in the sense that we remember negative things more readily and more easily than we do positive things. And I say this can make sense being a living being in the sense that we have to make sure we don't die. We have to make sure the really bad things don't happen. So it can actually make sense that the negative things stand out more. If you went into a forest once and you saw a snake and it really scared you, but you've also been in that same forest and saw a beautiful view, it could make sense that the snake might stand out more to you than the beautiful view. You can do without the beautiful view or do something else, but if you can get bit by a snake and die, that's something way more costly and way more uh, makes way more sense for you to be thinking of that even more, to have that more at the forefront. Even you could have had 20 nice experiences where you saw this beautiful view, but one time where you saw a snake and felt your life was at threat, and overall you might have a bad feeling about that forest. It's not a good place, even though you've had 20 good experiences and one bad. So it can make sense that we remember the negative things. So I think that's one aspect of why when you ask most people, they'll they, I get the sense they'll tell you they had bad luck, that things didn't go their way. Um, so I think one of it's just a artifact of that. But I also think going back to this narrative of our life, there's a way of saying that if I've had bad luck, or I can say, well, look where I am now, and that's despite all this bad luck I've had. It reminds me of, of poker players. Um, if you've ever talked to anyone who plays poker, just like I was saying about the negative standing out more, they can tell you with vivid detail the bad beats. Those are the times where they got bad luck. Those hands where they got really bad luck. I had two aces and the other person had had this weak hand and we put all of our money in and then all of a sudden on the river they got so lucky and I lost all this money. And so you'll always hear them, poker players, talking about their bad beats and their bad luck. Um, but of course, again, going back to something I was saying before of uh, all people, if, if people are losing these types of hands, someone is winning against them on those hands. And so they, of course, are failing to mention the times where they got very lucky, where they made a bad play and got their money in at a bad time, and they got lucky on the river. They won't tell you those stories as readily as they will those really bad beats, the times where they got such bad luck. And so as I was saying, it can make sense. It has this sense of saying, look where I am now, but imagine I've had all this bad luck and I still got here. I was able to persevere over all this bad luck. If I got good luck on those times where my luck was horrible, I'd be so far ahead, but here I am um, still proud of what I've done because of that bad luck. So there is this way that, of course, we uh, want to come off 
grateful in life and show gratitude because we know that we're not supposed to look ungrateful and that looks bad to look like you're unappreciative of what you have. But there's also this sense of we want people to know that we've kind of had bad luck. Things haven't gone our way. So if you see where I am and whatever it is, don't judge me just based on that. Also judge me based on the fact that I've had bad luck and things haven't worked out for me. And I think we want people uh, to think this of us, but also we want to think that too, because that can make us feel better. It's like, look at all the bad luck I've had. And so if I'm where I am, that's amazing considering what I know I've been through. But the truth is other people that you don't know have also had that type of whatever it is, that bad luck. We just don't always know about it. Just like, yeah, you might share some of these stories here and there. And I'm talking about poker where we're uh, the stakes are low, pun intended, and when it comes to life experiences. Um, but so we're aware of how much we put those out there in a way that most people don't know the pains that we've experienced. And that's why we see all these cheesy quotes, but very um, wise quotes about how everyone out there is battling uh, or going through a fight or a battle that you don't know about. You don't know how bad it is. And a reminder to try to be kinder to those around you because most of the time we don't know the challenges that someone is going through. So that's also a key to keep in mind. So each individual, have you been lucky or unlucky? I don't know. I can't tell you, but just one thing I've noticed is we tend to focus more or notice more our own bad luck and see that. And so why do I say all this? It's not to say uh, if bad things happen to you, they were your fault or wherever you are in your life, you were actually lucky. Um, and so you, you know, you didn't even do as much as you think you did. It's to think about how we are approaching our life going forward as well. So yes, that narrative of our story is important for many reasons. Uh, one, how we feel about ourselves and how we feel about life. And then also that's going to reflect what we then approach going forward. If we think we have bad luck, well, then why should I try again to, to do things, to put myself out there, whether it's emotionally, romantically, professionally, creatively, um, when I've had bad luck. So your story is not finished. And also you are editing not just uh, the future, but you're also editing the past. What's happened to you is not something that is fixed. And it can be difficult to reflect on it because we like to have this sense of, I know what happened to me. I understand it. Uh, it gives us some kind of peace of mind. No, no, I know why that relationship didn't work out, or I know my parents and how they were. People come to therapy, and um, one of the difficult things is going back and looking at their childhood because we have a narrative of what it was. Oh, you know, yeah, my dad was good and my mom was bad, or my parents were really good, or they were, no, they were horrible, they were the worst parents, or they were whatever it is. We have a story about our life and our childhood, and it could be a bit anxiety provoking to look back at that story and go deeper to see maybe it's more complex than we think. Maybe it isn't so black and white. We do like to make things very black and white. This part was good. This part was bad. This person was good. This person was bad. When in reality, both people, both parents were probably good and bad in their own ways. Your childhood was good and bad in its own ways. Um, but to go back at it means that you might have to tell a different story or learn a different story about your own life, even you, though you were the one that experienced it. And as we are the author of our life, of course, so much of it is still going to always be out of our control. But the more we recognize the ways we look at luck and what we've gone through, it could affect what we do and don't do 
in our future, what chances we're willing to take, and also then what regrets we might have because at the end of our life we'll look back and look and say, why didn't I do those things? We might have a different view of luck once we realize we have no more chances to do something new. All right, let's go to our last commercial break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Um, in the last segment, I wanted to talk about some uh, issues that are definitely political. And before I get started, I'll say that I've just scratched the surface myself of looking at all the details related to that. And I say this, although I'm not in a way a journalist, but doing a radio show, there is some journalistic integrity that if I'm going to talk about an issue, I, I should be well informed so that I'm representing things as accurately uh, as possible. So I say that because I've looked at some things related to this issue that I'm going to bring up, but especially wanted to talk about it because I've seen some things today that I found very alarming. Um, and even hearing someone use the name of Victor Frankel, as I mentioned, I'll be reading his book and talking about on Friday. Uh, he's, his book, Yes to Life, in spite of everything, is one I'll be reading, but his most well-known book is Man's Search for Meaning. And so let me, instead of dancing around the issue, talk about what's been happening um, related to history in the, the United States and the teaching of history. You might be aware of this, but there is a, a bill being passed or some legislation being passed in Florida, in the state of Florida, where they want to have it where teaching about slavery in history classes to, I think it's to middle school and high school students, they want to make sure that it also includes that slavery was in some ways beneficial to um, the slaves because they learned certain useful skills. So that makes it in some way beneficial that they then had those skills after slavery if, when they were no longer slaves to use. And so understandably, there's been a, a huge, huge, huge backlash against this because it's just horrific and such a misrepresentation of history um, to talk about the benefits to the slaves you know, of what, what has happened. And so the reason why um, I mentioned Viktor Frankl is that I saw a clip from and I don't want to even name the people who, who said it and get into that, but that they were talking about uh, slavery and then making comparisons to the Holocaust. And um, some uh, news contributor said something that about how uh, even he called Victor Frankel, Vic Frankel, as if it's his buddy in his book, Man's Search for Meaning, that the, the Jewish people who survived the concentration camps, they were useful. They had skills. And, and those were the ones who survived. So um, in some way implying, as some people are saying, that the arguments become now that slavery wasn't so bad and so also the Holocaust was not so bad, which is uh, the worst way for us to remember history and to dishonor the victims who've gone through the Holocaust and slavery by let's talk about the good parts. And so I was really shocked. I, I, I shouldn't say shocked because what you see in the political landscape now is people saying these very extreme things to get attention, um, but also just shows how politicized and polarized everything has become, that things that are clearly and obviously bad um, get some new ways of being presented in order to push a certain type of narrative or ideology. So I was really upset 
And my own reading of man's search for meaning wasn't that it was the Jewish people or the people in the concentration camps who had skills that survived. Um, the whole title of the book, Man's Search for Meaning, my what I took from that was actually Viktor Frankl's own experience. And what he noticed was that the people who survived were not the physically strongest, or I would think even the most skilled in a way. It was those who had some meaning, something to live for that might give them some more motivation and inspiration to survive. And my own understanding would be that many people with so much meaning still died. So it wasn't that if you had meaning, you would survive the concentration camp, but that it might have been something that would allow you to continue to some degree or to persevere. But this notion that if you had good skills or if you knew how to do something made yourself useful, um, then these Jews would survive the concentration camp is such a horrible misrepresentation of what has happened. And if we want to learn about how to remember the Holocaust and from that, how I think as Americans in America, we would want to remember the negative parts of our own history, we should actually look to the Germans themselves and how they are so adamant about teaching the horrific history of the Holocaust, which their own nation was responsible for, to their youth, and that Holocaust denial is, I'm not sure if it's officially a crime or how it's um, uh, labeled or if, if it's you know, prosecutor, how that works in detail. Again, one of those things that I don't know in enough detail to speak on, but I do know that it's something very significantly frowned upon, discouraged. And as I mentioned, I think there's some kind of legal precedent there as well, that you can't deny it uh, in any way in Germany, the country that, that did it themselves, that they're responsible. And I think that's a very um, wise way to approach something like that. We have to learn from our history, even if we or our ancestors are responsible for it, um, and we have to learn from what was bad and ugly about it, very importantly, not try to make the bad parts seem good to make us feel good, which is often what it seems like is happening. And this is, uh, to me, another reminder of some of the thoughts we have of loving your country or loving anyone or loving uh, anything that we think that if we love something, then we just see it as good, which is not true. To actually love something, we have to actually know that thing, whatever that is. It's a, a nation, a history, a person. We have to know it more accurately. So if we love someone, a human being, um, it doesn't mean we don't see anything negative that they've done or any negative qualities about them. We see them as they are, and overall, we love them. And actually, if anything, because we love them, if we notice something wrong, unhealthy, not good, we would bring it to their attention. We would not want to uh, avoid telling them. But at times I see this in especially America, but in general, the sense that if we, if you love America, you should only think America was good, is good, and will continue to be good and be the best nation in the world. Um, and, and everything about it is is good. That means loving America. And I don't agree with that at all, that if you genuinely love America, you would love the country and even what it does in some ways, but you also will recognize how it fails to meet to its own ideals, the things that it was based on, that all men were created equal. Even that line itself has multiple 
levels we can look at to begin with even at that time um, slavery was very real and so all men meant white men and then also all men meant men not women so it was a good aspirational type of a mindset or principle but wasn't followed definitely then and we see that we're still failing in america to meet that standard where giving everyone equal rights is very clearly done and so if we i think if you love america or if you love any the, the world you recognize those negative things as well what's not right about our country what's not right about what it's done and i think uh, america's very strongly failed in this in reconciling this uh, huge sin of slavery and this horrible part of our history that has not been reconciled and dealt with accordingly or, or uh, appropriately and as i mentioned in germany i think they've done a much better job of that, of recognizing that we have to be very clear about how wrong this was, how bad it was, and that we don't want to try to make ourselves feel better that maybe it wasn't bad or, well, the people that didn't aren't alive anymore um, or, you know, everyone was doing things like this at that time or it was more common back then or whatever else or whitewashing the history to show some benefits that... Um, were somehow there that maybe it wasn't all bad and that's the the true lesson of it so it is really sad to see this it's very much to me a step backwards if we're going to teach american history in a way that uh, mentions or focuses and makes sure to emphasize that slavery somehow had beneficial impact for the blacks or that there was something they went through that was positive to me is really horrific and very very sad uh, and I think it makes sense for people to be upset and alarmed about it. I think, as I mentioned to start off the segment, it's a, another horrible uh, example of how polarized things have become, where it's more about pushing a certain narrative or ideology rather than finding some kind of truth or finding what is the best way to move forward with what is was going on. And so I was mentioning our personal narratives and how we can remember things and that uh, is very much true but here we can see that of course collectively as as a country we can have that same type of narrative too who were we what were we and i think one aspect of the american history um, the narrative that is often put forward is this american exceptionalism that we are somehow better than others we have always been better than others We've always done right. And even uh, things like manifest destiny and those types of principles made it clear that even what we did, when what we did looked wrong, we had the right to do it. So even if we killed people, uh, committed acts of genocide, there was some way where it was our manifest destiny was already something that uh, belonged to us that we were just taking. If we took some land from the Native Americans, it was already ours to begin with. It was manifest destiny. And so there is this way that I think is a very unfortunate one, that the ways that um, Americans tend to think, it means you love America, is to think of this way, that uh, America was is exceptional, was exceptional, and will always be. Even I've heard people say that they want to make sure in our history it's taught to children that America is the greatest nation that ever was and still is. Uh, that that American exceptionalism is something that is um, taught to children very clearly, and I very much disagree with that. I do think we see this in 
the variety of ways that we are focused so much on um, showing ourselves as better than others. Actually, I think in Man's Search for Meaning, um, Viktor Frankl talks about Alfred Adler and his, I think, also very important contribution about power or uh, that being what people are looking for, or searching for. And, and Viktor Frankl saying, actually, it's it's meaning. But I think there's something very important there in that we do like to see ourselves as better than others. And it's almost a superiority type of mindset that makes us feel better because of this fear of our own inferiority. So um, things like the inferiority complex, when you hear those types of terms, that's this fear that we have of because I might be nothing or insignificant or weaker than others, I will try to make myself feel better than others. And in doing so, we'll likely have to find others to put down, whether it's certain individuals or even groups of people. And so we've seen that throughout human history continuing. And this is why I think it's so important that we, for example, learn history the right way, that actually this was something that was wrong about America and continues to be, but especially with there during slavery, this mindset that whites were superior to blacks and acting in this way was somehow okay and how not okay that is. That should be part of what we're teaching children, to not see ourselves or anyone as less than others or above others to seeing that true equality, all men, all people were created equal, making that the the principle that we're taught that this was something really wrong that was happening then and was all bad. And what can we learn from it going forward? Uh, but I'll conclude there because we're at the end of our time for today. Big thank you to Ghazale here in the studio. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Zan Zendegi Azadi. Thank you.